In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A blessed fourth Sunday in Advent to each and every one of you. And how good it is to be back with you. My family and I feeling well. Thank you so much for your prayers. Luther liked to say that God's word is the manger and the cradle in which Jesus Christ can still be found. It's a beautiful picture. And we can even see that in the texts of Scripture today, the Old Testament and epistle text, the Old Testament where God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak as I command him. In other words, Jesus is going to be a new and greater Moses, and he's going to bring an even greater covenant than that which was given on Sinai, the covenant given to us in his cup. So too with the epistle, Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoicing isn't always possible, but rejoicing in the Lord is. And so, whatever questions we might have for God, whatever sources of sorrow there might be in our lives, however many things there might be that disturb our peace, the answer is always to be found in Jesus. God's word is, as Luther says, the manger and cradle in which we find him. And that's the title of my homily for today. The scriptures are the manger. If your Bible could speak to you, what would it say? Perhaps it would say, please read me. If your Bible did literally speak to you, it might well just speak to you in song. After all, the scriptures are filled with singing. And perhaps the greatest of all scriptures songs are recorded in our gospel text today the song of Mary, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Of course, before Mary even finishes the first stanza of her song, she's already taught us two things. In the first place, we're reminded by her that the Bible is filled with poetry and hymnody and beauty of every kind. And in the midst of contemporary American culture, which seems to be a competition of who can be the ugliest, the most depraved, and the most desperate, how deeply we need to first receive ourselves and then proclaim the word of God in all its splendor and unparalleled beauty. And second, we're reminded and taught by Mary that a woman doesn't need to disobey God's word and become a pastor in order to be a master theologian. By remaining exactly as God called her to be, Mary ends up becoming a teacher of every Christian theologian and pastor who has ever lived. Mary simply embraces the role that God had given, and now neither she nor her song will ever be forgotten. Mary's greatness, paradoxically, consists in her humility. 
a humility that, even more mysteriously, reflects God's own humility. We don't often think of God as being humble, and yet that is precisely what he is. How is it that he comes to us? Not in a flaming heavenly chariot surrounded by a parade of angels announcing his coming, but quietly and humbly, just as if he were anyone else. He enters our world through the womb. And into our world he comes, not in power or might, but in the lowliest of human forms. He comes as an embryo. He makes himself little and lowly, so that no matter how little and lowly you may be, you can be certain that he has also come for you. So Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. God regards lowliness. While the world of man regards the rich and powerful lives of quote-unquote important people, God regards lowliness. God regards the lowly lives of his people. The rich and powerful and important people of this world perish with this world. The history books of this world perish already and will perish, and the names written within them will largely be forgotten. But God will cause his lowly ones to be remembered for all eternity. And when the history books of heaven are opened, they'll be filled with lowly people and humble deeds, or at least that's how we'd see it now. But that's not how we'll see it then. Picture the woman, the widow, giving her last might, an entire chapter unto itself. If only we parents understood this. Would you rather your child be great in this world and be remembered in this world's history books for the short time in which they're around? Or would you rather prefer your child to be great in that age which is to come, to have their quiet lives of faithfulness recorded in heaven's history books for all eternity. It changes everything when we think that way. Mary continues, For behold, from this day, all generations will call me blessed. And what Mary sings is, of course, true. Even immediately, Elizabeth says to her, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What's true for Mary is, in a sense, true for us, for the entire church. For God has also regarded us, just as he regarded Mary. And just as he has placed Christ into her womb, so he places Christ into our hearts, and thus becomes our Savior. Mary's entire canticle, of course, is occasioned by this singular and unique fact that she has become pregnant with God. And in this sense, of course, Mary is the most blessed of all the blessed and has been granted this unique gift to be mother of our Lord. That's the very thing that Elizabeth calls her. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
the scriptures call Mary the mother of our Lord, and in keeping, the ancient church calls Mary the mother of God. Both of these titles, of course, have less to do with Mary than they have to do with Jesus. If Jesus is the Lord, and he certainly is, then Mary is the mother of the Lord. And if Jesus is God, and he certainly is, then, Jesus, then Mary is the mother of God. Of course, if all this talk of Mary is starting to trouble your Lutheran ears, then whatever you do, don't read Luther. Because he praises Mary far beyond what I've said here. For Luther, she is the blessed Virgin Mary, the symbol and icon of the church, a woman clothed with the sun, as the scriptures say, with the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars upon her head. She is the mother of Christ, Christ who is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And if we are his brothers, then Mary is also our mother. With the ancient church and with the Lutheran fathers, we may praise Mary in every good and right way. But of course, there is one thing we must not do, and that is to put our faith in Mary instead of in Jesus, her child. For the scriptures plainly say that there is one mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is our God and Savior. And it just so happens that Mary agrees As she sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is why he came, after all, to be born of a woman, born under the law, in order to have mercy on poor sinners, to save us because we simply cannot save ourselves. We don't often stop to ponder just how desperate our situation truly is. If not for Christ, you, me, and every other human being would perish and perish eternally, and there wouldn't be a thing we could do about it. We may think that our sins are small and insignificant things, but hell would quickly teach us otherwise. In fact, the cross itself teaches us otherwise. In the agony of Christ's scourged body, in the torture and humiliation of his crucifixion, in his being forsaken by God, each one of us individually can see how evil and wretched in God's sight we are. That, his cross, is what has to be paid in order for us to be saved. So look to the cross and see that is the only way we could be saved, And that is the reason why the Christ child came. His birth and his cross are his mercy toward you. Mercy of which Mary sings, For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. In mercy, he goes to the cross in your place and for you that God might declare sinners to be righteous in his sight. And Mary sings of this very reversal. It is precisely through the weakness of his birth and through the weakness of the cross that he has shown strength with his arm 
and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. The man who humbles himself before God will be exalted. And at this very table, this very day, he feeds the hungry with good things. The rich are in fact out there empty and away, while we poor beggars who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not our own, that we do not possess, find it here freely given. And we poor beggars find ourselves seated at the very table of God. Christ incarnate and Christ crucified is given to our lips and to our hearts. And here we receive the greatest honor and the greatest righteousness there is. Mary ends her song with these beautiful words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Which means, very simply, that our God is a God who keeps his promises. And that is what the fourth Sunday is all about. Indeed, it's what Christmas is all about. God keeps his promises. And so in sickness or in health, when all around us is going pretty well or pretty much the opposite of well, in the midst of all life's changes, we can be certain that God does not change. He is faithful, he is good, and he keeps his word. It may take some time. In fact, it may take a whole lot of time. But God always keeps his promises. Long ago, he promised our Father's mercy, and Mary tells us that in her womb, that mercy has come. Long ago, God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and Mary tells us that that seed has come. So let us humble our hearts in faith that we may receive him too. In the manger of the scriptures, wrapped in the swaddling cloth of God's word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.